Hey, Dr. Crystal here. Should you or shouldn't you stay away from gluten? Stay tuned to find out. You're listening to Live Foreverish, a show dedicated to helping you live just a little longer. Here's your host, Dr. Mike and Dr. Crystal Gosser. Hello and welcome to Live Foreverish. I'm your host, Dr. Crystal, and joining me today is Dr. Rachel Kennedy, a gastroenterology physician fellow at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be yeah. here. Yes, I asked Dr. Kennedy to join us because it's Celiac Awareness Month, which is all about raising awareness about celiac disease in order to further research uh, for treatment and a cure because currently there is no cure. And of course, you can't talk about celiac disease without talking about gluten. So Dr. Kennedy is going to enlighten us on celiac disease. Uh, we'll have a discussion on how gluten relates, and she'll give us insight on what she's seeing in her patients and any recent updates in the field of gastroenterology on this subject. Um, so before we get started, I think... Uh, Dr. Kennedy, let's first give our listeners an overview of celiac disease um, and how it relates to gluten. Sure, absolutely. Um, so celiac, I'm sure that most of you have heard of, is a condition that's um, an inflammatory autoimmune-based reaction to dietary gluten. Uh, gluten is a storage protein that's contained in wheat, barley, and rye. Um, this condition primarily affects the small intestine and it usually occurs, um, it occurs in patients with a predisposition to celiac disease. So meaning that they have some genetic component that, component that puts them at increased risk for developing celiac disease. Um, over the past 50 years, there's been a sig significant increase in the prevalence of celiac disease and an increased rate in the diagnosis over the past 10 years. At this point, it's thought that about 3 million people in the United States have diagnosed celiac disease. So that's about one in every 140 patients or so. Wow. And maybe a couple more million that don't even know they have it. Well, yes, I um, when I was doing research on this for... Um a another show, uh, I found this stat that 85 to 90% of individuals um, in the United States who have celiac disease remain undiagnosed. So uh, to me, that is just shocking. And I heard a story from a coworker just last week who is, he has to be in his 40s um, or maybe late 40s or, or early 50s and he was just diagnosed right. and what prompted his diagnosis was because his son got diagnosed oh yes and so that's just shocking to me right i'm i'm totally surprised how many patients we see sometimes who have thought that their symptoms that they've experienced their whole life were just normal um but you know for some reason they've finally become tired of what they've been dealing with, sought a, a professional opinion, and then we diagnose them with celiac disease, like you said, sometimes in their you know, fifth decade of life. Um, actually, two of my family members were diagnosed with celiac disease, and one uh, had seen you know, dermatologists for years because of a rash, and finally, one of them biopsied it, realized it was a skin condition that's related to celiac. So, you really? know- disease can manifest in a lot of ways. And I agree. I think a lot of people probably have no idea that they have it. 
and you know diagnosing people can be um, so important to improve their quality of life and try to prevent complications related to celiac disease. Well, that was something that I also found interesting because I guess people aren't really coming to you. They're going to see other doctors um, because I guess it's not always digestive issues. Right. Absolutely. The wow. People with celiac disease do have digestive issues, um, mm -hmm. maybe diarrhea, unintentional weight loss. Sometimes it's something as simple as bloating or just feeling gassy. Um, people may real, um, see fat or greasy stools, things like that. You know, those can be some of the GI symptoms that people experience. But again, a lot of people may have experienced those symptoms for years and never even realized that that's abnormal. <laughs> Now, out of all of those symptoms, would you say there is one kind of standout symptom that, you know, our listeners can can sort of say, you know what, I have that, maybe I should go see my doctor? Right. Um, absolutely. So chronic diarrhea would be the most common symptom. Mm -hmm. That, you know, ruling out celiac disease is one of the standard approaches to chronic diarrhea. Um, especially if people have unintentional weight loss. But there are a number of other things that should prompt people to think about testing for celiac disease. Mm -hmm. And one of those that, you know, I know going through medical school, they really emphasize was extremely important is iron deficiency anemia. So if a patient has low iron levels, low ferritin levels, um, that should prompt a workup for celiac disease. Also elevated liver function tests without a different explanation, um, osteoporosis or other, other signs that the body isn't absorbing things well. So in children that can also manifest as impaired growth patterns. Well, that was actually when, when you mentioned the iron, I wonder, is it just the poor absorption? And I think we'll kind of talk about some of the damage that may lead to poor absorption or is it, um, bleeding? Do you, well, so any iron deficiency anemia, uh, especially in a non-menstruating female, really needs to be investigated, mm -hmm. ideally by a gastroenterologist, because it can be some internal bleeding that could be from other sources, like colon cancer, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that we don't take lightly in our field because it can be something serious. Um, could be ulcers, which might not be cancerous, but can cause problems, obviously, or it can be something like celiac disease. So, you know, iron deficiency definitely requires a workup, especially if mm -hmm. it's not in someone who has another explanation of um, iron deficiency, like right. menstruation, for example. So what is the workup like? You know, how would you diagnose celiac disease? Sure. So um, first, it starts with gathering a good history. So personal history, and also family history, because people with um, first degree relatives, so siblings, parents, um, or children with celiac disease are at increased risk. People with um, personal history of other autoimmune conditions, especially type 1 diabetes or thyroid mm. disease, they're at increased risk. So, you know, being able to identify the population at risk is kind of the first step. Mm -hmm. so step is gathering a good history about the symptoms. So we talked a little bit about the GI symptoms, but there can be other non-GI related symptoms like um, sores in the mouth, neuropathy, so numbness, tingling in the hands oh. and feet, for example. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, these types of things should, should prompt consideration of a diagnosis of celiac. So then step three is typically for people age two and up, um, mm -hmm. the, the testing begins with testing the blood. Um, it is important when we're doing a workup for celiac disease that the person being evaluated has not stopped consuming gluten completely because that can interfere with the testing results. Oh, um, so <laughs> the first step is usually testing an antibody. Um, it's called tissue transglutaminase or TTG. Yes. So mm -hmm. antibody that we initially test for is a category of antibodies called IgA or immunoglobulin A. So we test for that. And then some people can actually have total IgA deficiency. So their total amounts of these, this class of immunoglobulins can be low. So, and those are the ones that's found kind of in your mucous membranes, kind of the first line right. of your immune system defense, right? Correct. Okay. So a clinician has to kind of consider whether that's a possibility. And if it is, in addition to testing just the plain TTG um, IgA, then the total IgA needs to be tested. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a little nuance that I see um, people missing sometimes in the medical field. So most people know, you know, gastroenterologists typically know, but sometimes people that haven't had that additional training may forget to test for that. So, um, and then if that's, if that's suggestive of celiac disease, then an endoscopy is performed and small, small intestine biopsies are obtained to confirm the diagnosis. Okay. And, and so with the endoscopy, can you see what's going on is, or is it just the biopsy that that's used to confirm it? So a lot of times you can see endoscopic changes. So when you get into the small intestine, it's actually, <laughs> my co-fellows laughed at me when I first started um, my gastroenterology fellowship, because I, when I saw the small intestine, I said, it's so pretty, you know, there's all these little villi, which are these finger-like projections in the small intestine. And uh, a healthy small intestine has all these little projections that you can see are really uh, essential in absorbing nutrients. Um, but in someone with celiac disease, that's kind of flattened out. You don't see these typical healthy folds in the small intestine or these oh. uh, finger-like projections. It's not always readily apparent with the naked eye, however. Mm -hmm. So those intestinal biopsies are really crucial for making the diagnosis. All right. So I, I guess the, the takeaway message is you can't rely on your routine colonoscopy <laughs> because you're not seeing the small intestines. Right. Definitely not the colonoscopy because the colonoscopy involves evaluating the, the large intestine. Sometimes, you know, depending on the indication for the procedure or whatnot, they may look in the very end of the small intestine, which is called the terminal ileum. Mm -hmm. But to make a diagnosis of celiac, you really need an upper endoscopy to look in the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine that comes right mm -hmm. after the stomach. All right. And so let's say you have your diagnosis. How is it treated? <laughs> <laughs> so... It's a major change. And like I said, I have some family members who have gone through this change and it's it's not easy, but it basically comes to completely avoiding gluten. Oh no. So, <laughs> right. So that entails um, avoiding wheat, barley, and rye. Um, typically people with celiac disease 
are considered to tolerate oats, although there are some people who may not tolerate them as well as others. So typically wheat is the problem, uh, you know, the most problematic because it's in so many things that we consume. And if you go out to eat, it's extremely difficult to completely avoid gluten because it's used in so many kitchens. Um, so it can be a challenge, but I will say, you know, having had family members with these sensitivities, I've really seen a major change in um, food chains, you know, large restaurants becoming more aware. A lot of times you'll see a gluten-free menu and, you know, tons of gluten-free options and health food stores and even just regular grocery stores now. So yeah, I would have to admit I am seeing gluten-free all over the place. And so as a clinical nutritionist, obviously the the question that I get is, um, should I go gluten-free even if I don't have celiac disease? I mean, they all now have this perception or there's a general perception that gluten-free equates to healthy. Right. And I'm not sure if I'm on board with that. I know there are some people who may be more sensitive to gluten, there is um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Is that something that um, that you all would identify as well? Is there a way to identify that? There is. Um, it's something that is a little bit um, more nebulous, more controversial because the mm. diagnosis is not so clear cut. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, with regards to whether the general population should go gluten-free, I think that in general, we all get probably too much gluten in our diet if we follow an American diet, just because it's, you know, kind of what we're exposed to from mm -hmm. our first year on this planet. Um, and it's just, you know, probably, probably a little bit more than what we need. I'll just put it that way. But well, you know, I would have to agree, you know, generally we are heavy on the gluten and I think overconsumption of anything could potentially be problematic to, right. to the body. And I think we're heavy on gluten, but we're heavy on, on carbs too. Right. <laughs> so. um, you know, in general, whole grains have a lot of fiber and nutrients that can be beneficial. So I think that to say that we should eliminate an entire um, food group, if we haven't experienced any problems related to it would be, you know, maybe not in people's best interest. However, as you mentioned, there are some people who are um, particularly sensitive to either gluten or wheat, it could be some other component of wheat, a lot of the experts and non non-celiac um, gluten or wheat sensitivity feel that it may be related to components such as um, these amylase tryptan inhibitors or ATIs, or mm. also fructans, which are found in foods that are rich in FODMAPs. Yes. So there may be a lot more to it than, than we really come to understand just yet, but mm -hmm. there are um, Salerno, what are referred to as Salerno expert criteria for um, diagnosing the non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity. And it's a little bit complicated, but the main two components of the criteria are that someone has to have a symptomatic reaction to a wheat-containing food. And then it's they have to be someone in whom a diagnosis of celiac or true wheat allergy has been ruled out. Mm -hmm. um, so for the wheat allergy, the gold standard of diagnosing that would be skin prick testing, um, serum IgE levels or 
you know, and or oral food challenge. That's to evaluate for, you know, the immediate anaphylactic type allergy. Mm-hmm. So once wow. those are ruled out, then there's a complex um, protocol for kind of seeing is this, you know, really the case. So and those people who feel that they don't, you know, that they have a negative reaction to mm-hmm. wheat products when they try it. I mean, I think it's worth just giving it a try to stop it. Mm-hmm. But I think it is also important that they do seek the opinion of a of a gastroenterologist to see if they truly have celiac before they do that. Because like I mentioned at the beginning, if you cut out um, gluten containing products, making a diagnosis of celiac disease does become increasingly more difficult. Yes, that is a good point. Well, Dr. Kennedy, wow, I, we could go on and on and on, but, um, but I think that you've given us so much uh, good information, helpful information. I've learned a lot. You know, if you're listening and you are having, um, you know, chronic digestive issues, or maybe not, maybe you're, you're just having, you know, skin issues or, or some of the other, um, you know, health concerns, and you're not quite sure you've gone to doctor after doctor, and, uh, and you're not quite sure what the problem is, maybe you should get evaluated for celiac disease. You know, I just go back to that stat of, you know, 85% or more of people remain undiagnosed, and, you know, you can suffer from nutritional deficiencies and and so many other things. Um, So, we encourage you to see your doctor. And do you have any final points to say, Dr. Kennedy? Any uh, takeaway? You know, points? the only other thing that I might want to add is, you know, I completely agree with what you said. Getting a proper diagnosis is really imperative. Um, like I mentioned, you know, for quality of life, but also mm-hmm. to be able to um, identify and decrease the risk of complications related to celiac. I mean, untreated celiac disease can even increase the risk of lymphoma of the small intestine. So knowing your risk factors and getting screened and diagnosed appropriately is really important. So, you know, if, if people are listening to this and have symptoms that just don't feel right, you know, get, get a formal evaluation and there are a lot of options that can help. So. Okay. Well, thank you so much for it, but. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening to Live Forever-ish and stay tuned for more podcasts every Monday. And remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe so that you'll never miss a show.